AgriTalk is brought to you by Full Scale from Helena. Grow Strong returns this season with breakthrough foliar nutrition from Full Scale at Reproduction. And by Propane. Propane is the energy for everyone, especially farmers. Environmentally friendly propane can fuel most anything on the farm. See how at propane.com. Work continues on the Farm Bill with possible updates to the Title I programs. Will it force a choice between the farm program or crop insurance? While farmers face increased costs due to regulations like the Endangered Species Act. And the grand opening is held for the first ever ethanol to SAF plant in the world. Live from the backside of Hump Day via Farm Journal broadcast, this is AgriTalk. This morning, we begin with a conversation with Chandler Gould from the National Association of Wheat Growers. Then it's Steve Sensky from the American Soybean Association. And later, Monty Shaw from the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association. Directly following the news, Greg Henderson from Drovers joins. I'm handsome newsman Davis Michelson. And now, filling in for Chip Flory, please welcome Michelle Rook. Hey, thanks so much, Davis. And good morning. morning. Yeah. I see the fog outside of the window. It's not just my brain this morning, apparently, but a lot of fog across the country, it looks like. It might be both of our brains, because I think it's foggy here, too, <laughs> like really foggy. Yeah. Yes. Coffee's not helping. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I need a little more coffee, apparently. So, mm-hmm, yeah, we mm-hmm. could use some sunshine, but at least the temperatures have warmed a little bit. and um, For sure. Yeah. We, could, we could do a lot worse, you know? I haven't checked in on the temperature outside here. Let me just, here, well, now i got to enter in my phone thing. See, this is terrible radio right now, but it's going to be over soon. Let's see, uh, 37 degrees and drizzle here in the city of Fountains. Okay, well, we're in the lower 30s here up in the Dakotas, so we'll take that. We're not so far apart then. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to dive into the wheat market today? You got the National Association of Wheat Growers uh, represented this morning. Well, we'll talk a little bit about wheat, but we're going to talk a little bit more about the farm bill because uh, Chandler Gould, CEO of NOG, actually moderated a panel between Chairwoman Stabenow and ranking member Bozeman here recently. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. Wow. It's going to be good. Yeah, Yeah. that sounds great. Really good. Uh, Yeah, lots of stuff uh, going on. Yeah. And then over to Steve Sensky from, uh, from ASA. Yeah, Steve Sensky, a former Deputy Secretary of USDA as well, so he has a great perspective. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, ESA and the Endangered Species Act and what that might mean for costs to farmers, but a whole laundry list of other things to talk about. And then that first ever ethanol to SAF plant in the world yeah. was the Brown. They had the inauguration yesterday, Mani Shah, with the Ibro. Renewable Fields Association was there, and they also have a study that they came out with talking about what this could mean for Midwestern corn producers. So wow. lots of lots yeah. of stuff. Let's all stay right, tuned hands- in for this one, gang. Yeah, yeah. So handsome newsman Davis Michelson, please hey, start us off with the news. Absolutely, the National <laughs> Weather Service says, or at least thinks, flash flooding and severe weather concerns will continue for portions of the Southern Plains, Gulf Coast, Lower Mississippi Valley, and the Southeast. Freezing rain impacts are possible over parts of southern Maine and central New England. Unseasonably warm air surges into the eastern third of the country, leading to widespread record low temperatures Thursday night. Well, Michelle, in the the last quarter, 
Oh, yep, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, the Southern Plains goes from drought to flood. Unbelievable. Oh, yeah, that's the thing. In the uh, last quarter of 2023, the U.S. economy expanded at an annualized rate of 3.3%. That surpassed the market expectations of a 2% increase. This growth followed a 4.9% rate in the previous quarter, as indicated by uh, the advanced estimate. The expansion was driven by various factors. They include increased consumer spending, exports, state and local government spending, non-residential fixed investment, federal government spending, private inventory investment, and residential fixed investment. Imports also saw an uptick during the period. When considered the entire year of 2023, the U.S. economy registered a growth rate of 2.5%. That's a notable improvement compared to the 1.9% growth observed in 2022. Those figures pretty closely align with the Federal Reserve estimates of 2.6% for the year of 2023. Yeah, dollars up a little on it. Today, stock market's handling the news well. Well, Michelle, if I can get a little crude with you, Brent crude futures soared to over $81 per barrel on Thursday, approaching a two-month high. The surge followed a significant decline in U.S. crude oil inventories, which dropped by 9.233 million barrels during the weekend of Jan 19. This decline was uh, the most substantial since August and exceeded market expectations. And that's our Brent. Now I'm looking over here at the WTI, the West Texas Intermediate, the front month up uh, just below a dollar, 99 cents higher this morning, 76.08. Look all the way out to the July 24. We're up 87 cents, 75.22. Um, an increase in that Brent crude WTI still kind of quiet, Michelle. Yeah, yeah, the charts are still looking kind of sideways there. So we'll see if we can keep moving up higher there. Well, President Joe Biden has postponed the approval of what would be the largest natural gas export terminal in the United States, bowing to increasing pressure from climate activists. We could really use a uh, nat gas export terminal here. Uh, yeah, anyway. Yeah. The European economy is beginning to experience the consequences of supply chain disruptions caused by the ongoing crisis in the Middle East. Recent data reveals that in January, businesses faced delays in receiving essential parts, primarily due to attacks by Yemen-based Houthi rebels on cargo ships in the Red Sea. This could turn into a mess, Michelle. It already is, I think. Hmm. Yep, indeed. Well, in other world news, the Red Cross has issued a warning that Gaza is at risk of a complete medical shutdown unless immediate action is taken to ensure the availability of essential services. Meanwhile, Michelle, Israeli forces have alleged that Hamas is systematically operating within Gaza hospitals and nearby areas using residents as human shields. Over to you, Michelle. Yeah, great job. Thanks, Davis. Uh, joining us now, Greg Henderson, editor of Drovers. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, Michelle. Oh, your theme for today is technology in the cattle industry. Yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, we're not going to talk about all the mud that we're going to see in these feedlots in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> so let's talk about technology. Uh, USDA has announced they'll launch a remote grading pilot project, primarily aimed at those small butchers and independent processors. The concept is to allow USDA grader to assess beef carcasses uh, and assign official quality grade from a remote location. Now, this uh, remote grading matches simple technology with robust data management and program oversight and could help people uh, access value-added programs that were previously unavailable. Hmm. And this one is really interesting, Michelle. There's a company called Precision Livestock Technologies, 
They've unveiled an AI-powered feed bunk reader, which is the first system using artificial intelligence to predict cattle feed intake and make feeding recommendations. This theoretically would replace those bunk readers that are out uh, viewing feed bunks at 4, 5 o'clock a.m. every day. So it, they've got a rugged camera unit that would overlook those bunk lines, uh, capturing continuous data and, and feed in the bunk as cattle consume it. Uh, system generates daily quantitative feeding predictions, Michelle, based on hundreds of data points. Sounds really techy, right? But um, uh, and they say that they're ahead is they're going to be able to predict cattle weight and performance in the feedlot and spot health problems. Fascinating stuff if it works. Wow, cool stuff indeed. All right. Well, thanks for that update, and we will see you next week at NCBA convention. Yes, I'm looking forward to it, Michelle. We'll see you there. All right. Greg Henderson, editor of Drovers, joining us here on AgriTalk. We'll be back. Chandler Gould, CEO of the National Association of Wheat Growers, is up next. From powering irrigation engines to warming buildings, propane has always been a part of American farm life. Now, you can be a part of propane's future and save money at the same time. The Propane Farm Incentive Program is a research initiative that provides farmers up to $5,000 towards the purchase of new propane-powered equipment. In exchange, participants share performance data to make tomorrow's ag operations more cost-effective, more efficient, and more environmentally friendly with propane. Getting started is simple. Visit propane.com slash farm incentive to see if you're eligible. To produce higher yields and greater value at harvest, timing is everything. Full Scale from Helena helps soybeans reach their full potential with breakthrough foliar nutrition and reproduction. Full Scale delivers beneficial plant extracts and micronutrients with the added efficiency of ENC formulation technology. It gives your soybeans every opportunity to grow strong returns this season. Contact your local ag retailer or Helena representative to learn more about Full Scale. Always read and follow label instructions and check registration status before use. Join us in Orlando at the 2024 NCBA Cattle Convention. Don't miss U.S. Farm Report host Tyne Morgan's live taping with industry experts February 1st at noon. Be part of the live audience at the Chuck Wagon Cafe number one. And welcome back to AgriTalk. I'm Michelle Rook in for Chip Flory this week. And uh, we mentioned NCBA, you just heard us talk about uh, how we're going to be there with U.S. Farm Report. We're also going to have updates for you on Ag Day TV as well. Well, joining us here for this segment of the show, Chandler Gould, CEO of the National Association of Wheat Growers. Good to have you along, Chandler. I know you're busy with uh, your guys' meetings for the board this week, aren't you? Oh, absolutely, Michelle. But we always appreciate the invitation and the opportunity to, uh, to be on your show. But yes, you're right. Both uh, the National Association of Wheat Growers and the U.S. Wheat Associates are having our joint board meeting here in Washington, D.C. Uh, this week. And as a matter of fact, um, we just released all of uh, the NOG members onto Capitol Hill. So they're on oh. the House and the Senate side talking farm bill and appropriations and, and you know, just other things that are affecting um, wheat growers. But our main focus clearly is getting a farm bill done. 
Yeah, so let's jump right into that. You moderated a panel with Senate Ag Committee Chair Debbie Stabenow, ranking member John Bozeman. We've heard a lot about Stabenow discussing making updates to the Title I program, such as our PLC, maybe even raising reference prices. Is that the direction that we're headed or not? So that did come up uh, this morning between between the chair and, and the ranking member. Uh, Chairwoman Stabenow, you know, really emphasized both. Well, let me be clear: both both senators strongly emphasized the importance that crop insurance is the number one priority, uh, which is also the number one priority for the wheat growers. Then, as we move down into just how effective is the actual safety net, since there has been a significant uh, increase in the cost of operation since you know the, the the 14 farm bill and the 18 farm bill, and now whether it's you know, crop inputs or uh, inflation or just everything along those lines, is the safety net really a safety net? And they are looking at the PLC price because I know there's more more commodities other than wheat asking for that increase. You bet. But the chairwoman alluded to it's difficult and she's not sure how do you take in uh, increased cost of production or maybe just even input cost increase and what kind of factor do you multiply by or how do you develop a system so that that's fair across commodities and fair across geographical regions? Because, I mean, it, it changes. Cost of production in Washington State and cost of production in Kentucky are very different for the wheat growers. So it's a challenging problem that both the chair and the ranking member were committed at looking at. Now, Chairman Stabenow apparently had sent a letter out maybe proposing to improve crop insurance, but require row crop farmers to pick between, say, subsidized crop insurance or the safety net programs in the farm bill. That's not a new concept, but is that something they're still looking at? So I had a couple uh, people come up to me, and I know this is the wheat growers meeting, but some cotton growers come up and say that, you know, that's always been their their program. And I can tell you that uh, right now, NOG would not support having to elect between PLC and ARC or crop insurance. Uh, we think it's a three-legged stool there that is very important. Uh, you know, clearly your PLC for, for a price issue, uh, ARC for a revenue issue, and you still have to pick between those two anyway. So uh, that, would, that would not be something that NOG would support, but I think they're really just trying to look at ways to make those three programs really reflect the the, the current cost of production to bring them up to to what today's markets and, and production looks like. So if you just ask me flat out, you have to pick between crop insurance or ARC and PLC, NOG would not be supportive of that. Yeah, the concept has been used before in previous farm bills, right, and failed? Uh, yes, it has. It, trying to, you know, we've always come and say crop insurance is number one. You know, there have been some state associations, uh, you know, within commodities saying, They'd be willing to get rid of PLC and ARC to beef up crop insurance, but that has not been uh, widely spread or, or wide supported. That's usually you know, one or two organizations at a state level being an outlier. Yeah. So going back to reference prices, what is the appetite or the support in either the Senate or the House for increasing reference prices even? When you speak to the four corners, the, so the chair and the ranking members, the desire to help growers to increase the PLC price is there, but a statutory increase is just so unbelievably expensive that when it comes back to grower associations like the wheat growers, do we want to spend what little bit of money they may be able to generate, you know, for, for updating the farm bill for a nickel for at the PLC price, which is honestly not going to do anything for wheat if you move us from 550 to 555. Or do we want to look at other enhancements, maybe making sure 
crop insurance uh, uh, premiums for larger uh, for for a wider coverage uh, is more affordable for more growers. And we haven't been asked that hard question yet, but I've been very clear with my members. Do you want a nickel or do you want us to come over here and expand something that might actually cover, bring more coverage to wheat growers? And and so I would say on the all four corners, they support raising the PLC price. It literally comes down to the funding and how do you do it and actually raise it to a level that's effective. Yeah. So let's talk about timing, especially when we look at appropriations and whatnot. House Ag Chairman uh, G.T. Thompson, I think last week said that maybe they would work on the farm bill, the markup in March, but the appropriations bills have to get done prior to that. Is that right? That's right. And, you know, so this uh, stopgap measure they just passed on the goes through March 3rd. Uh, we asked both uh, Chairwoman Stabenow and Ranking Member Bozeman as well, as long as we're playing kick the can with the appropriations process, that's going to also continue to kick the can for a full reauthorization of a five-year farm bill. And and one of the concerns that both uh, the Chairwoman and the Ranking Member brought up today was, you know, the, the Congressional Budget Office is going to put out a new baseline at towards mid to end of February and then another one in May. And if we don't actually have a farm bill, and I don't know, I'll be honest here, I don't know if it has to be in both chambers or in one, but if we don't have a farm bill that's actually in action and and and, and is moving, then we're not able to lock in that CBO score from last year, and we're going to have to start dealing with the new CBO score that comes out in February and May. And with commodity prices lower, that makes programs more expensive. And then if we make it all the way to May, there's a good chance that we'll just literally lose uh, baseline dollars because of the way funding goes uh, with with government programs through the farm bills. So we've got a timing problem. We need to get appropriations done and we need to lock in last year's baseline so we can actually start making those difficult decisions. Okay. That's a new wrinkle I hadn't heard about. So let me also ask you, if we keep kicking this down the road, the farm bill, you know, will the election delay this more? Absolutely. You know, this is now this is this is Chandler's opinion, having been here for 24 years. But I mean, if we don't have this farm bill moving through both floors by Aprilish, and really I would even say Marchish, and I think March is gonna be very difficult. Once we get into that May, June uh uh timeline, the entire House of Representatives is up for re-election. The Republicans have a very thin majority. Uh, farm bill is not going to be at the top of their mind. And I'm and I'm saying this about members who are not on the House and Senate Ag Committee. So other members, this is not going to be a top priority for them moving into election season. And I would Dude. see the farm bill getting pushed into next year. Wow. Yeah. On a political election year, we always get caught up in things like that. Okay. I also want to ask you a little bit about uh, transportation and shipping issues. You know, wheat exports, we've been trying to catch up here, obviously, but, you know, we've got drought in the Panama Canal. The outlook is getting a little bit better for the Mississippi River Valley. But what impact has had all this had on the wheat industry? Sure. Well, you know, we export 50 percent of the wheat that's grown here in the United States and making sure that we have got uh, those good transportation systems. And we can even take it beyond just the river system. We do use the Mississippi River uh, some, but it, but our but our largest market, of course, is in Mexico, and the railways is our right. largest way of transporting that. And you know, we dealt with that what two weeks ago, where we shut mm -hmm. down two of the largest uh, terminals there. So glad to see those back open. And then, of course, the Panama Canal being so critical for international trade, uh, moving things from you know from from the from the east or from the west to the east or vice versa. But 
You know, we've also got another problem here in the United States itself. Uh, next week on the House side, I believe the Energy and Commerce Committee is going to have another hearing discussing the four lower river, uh, four lower dams on the Snake River out in Washington State, and and about the administration's proposal to possibly remove them which would completely devastate not only the wheat industry, but a lot of exports that are going to that Asian Pacific realm because the river would then become unnavigable for barges. And so gotcha. I'm worried about the Panama. I'm worried about the Mississippi, but that Snake River affects us the most right now. Just a little time left. Uh, also talk about the outlook for wheat acres in 24. We've got improved moisture, but lower prices. We do have lower prices, but you know, the fact that we've got more moisture out there, most of our good states have got a nice snowpack or snow cover out there to help provide that. I think we're probably going to hold about the same in acreage uh, as things go. Of course, the chief economists uh, at USDA and other places are predicting lower prices, which could have definitely affect some planting decisions, but I'm not expecting an, a, a drastic increase or decrease in the current acreage compared to last year. Yeah. All right. Well, I saw maybe some forecast for like 2 million acres less spring wheat here this week in that farm future survey. So hopefully that's not the case. Chandler, always a pleasure to visit with you. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Chandler Gould, CEO of the National Association of Wheat Growers. We'll talk to another CEO coming up, Steve Sensky with the American Soybean Association here on AgriTalk. Time for Markets Now with the experts from ProFarmer. And joining us, editor of ProFarmer, Brian Grady. Well, we have uh, a lot of red on the board over in the grain trade here with the exception of some of the wheat contracts but corn and beans what are we seeing some profit taking we've had a pretty good run off the report day lows yeah soybeans uh, in particular they're uh trading more than 20 cents lower in the front end of the market here at mid-morning and and uh, we've erased basically the gains that we saw the three previous days and and uh so you know just kind of a, a ugly morning a trade but it's pretty broad based the meal market's under pressure uh soy oil's under heavy pressure and and uh, the weekly export sales number for soybeans was disappointing and and so that probably gave them a tech or a fundamental trigger but uh, technical selling is involved in this as well and and like i said pretty broad based across the soy complex which is spilling over to the corn market and uh, also starting to weigh on srw wheat futures uh, the other two wheat markets are still showing a a little bit of green in some of the contracts but uh, not much buyer interest there yeah probably ran up into some chart resistance as well is that what happened over in the livestock after those big chart breakouts yeah yeah, so uh, kind of choppy trade here in the uh, cattle market, uh, both live cattle and feeder cattle. Still waiting on active cash cattle trade. Uh, the initial stuff has been about a dollar higher in Texas. And, and so uh, we anticipate the prices will be at least a dollar higher when all said and done. But, uh, you know, it might be uh, late today or even tomorrow before we see the active trade in the uh, southern plains and, and northern market, too. Uh, on the the uh, hog side of things, kind of choppy tone as well. Uh, just not much price action going on there. So, um, you know, we continue to see the cash index rise seasonally, and uh, the futures okay. are just kind of waiting on the cash to catch up. All right. Thanks so much, Brian Grady, editor of Pro Farmer. To produce higher yields and greater value at harvest, timing is everything. Full Scale from Helena helps soybeans reach their full potential with breakthrough foliar nutrition and reproduction. Full Scale delivers beneficial plant extracts and micronutrients with the added efficiency of ENC formulation technology. 
It gives your soybeans every opportunity to grow strong returns this season. Contact your local ag retailer or Helena representative to learn more about Full Scale. Always read and follow label instructions and check registration status before use. From powering irrigation engines to warming buildings, propane has always been a part of American farm life. Now you can be a part of propane's future and save money at the same time. The Propane Farm Incentive Program is a research initiative that provides farmers up to $5,000 towards the purchase of new propane-powered equipment. In exchange, participants share performance data to make tomorrow's ag operations more cost-effective, more efficient, and more environmentally friendly with propane. Getting started is simple. Visit propane.com slash farm incentive to see if you're eligible. Opinions expressed on AgriTalk do not necessarily reflect the views of Farm Journal Broadcasting, affiliate stations, or sponsors. When news breaks, the newsmakers talk about it on AgriTalk with Chip Flory. And welcome back to AgriTalk. I'm Michelle Rook, and for Chip Flory here this morning. Steve Sensky, CEO of the American Soybean Association, is joining us now. Good to have you along, Steve, and good morning. Good morning, Michelle. Glad to be with you. Yeah, I, I got to tell our listeners about our connection. We're both jackrabbits. Yes, and go Jacks. And uh, <laughs> they, an, another, uh, so it's the uh, the championship, uh, the champion Jacks. Yes, uh, two national championships in a row for our South Dakota State University jackrabbits. So that's our connection. But um, obviously, I'm really glad to have you on the show because of your expertise and background, especially coming off of USDA and whatnot. But let's talk about um, quickly, I visited with Chandler a little bit about Farm Bill and um, some of the comments he got this morning from Chairwoman Stabenow and uh, Ranking Member Bozeman about making some updates to this Title I program here. And I know Soybean Association really wants uh, these reference prices to be raised, don't you? We do. We've been talking about the need to increase reference prices. Uh, really, the soybean reference price, we think, is too low. Um, and we saw the f- effects of that during the trade war, even, you know, w- which we had when uh, President Trump imposed the tariffs and China retaliated. We saw soybean p- prices plummet, but yet we still did not trigger any kind of payments under the the traditional farm program safety net. And that really emphasized to soybean farmers that we really, that our reference price is way too low. And so we've been pressing, you know, both the the Congress uh, to raise the reference prices. Um, We know that that's going to be expensive. There's different ways to try to do that. You can have yeah. a straight out reference price increase, or you can also remove some of the caps that that the uh, that they 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 adjust automatically. There's uh, looking back, and they're supposed to adjust upwards, but there's a 15% cap on how much they can adjust over time. So, where do you get the money to do it? I know Vilsack said maybe CCC. Uh, yes, uh, you know that's that's one possibility, um, and uh, that is, I think the you know that's the the big question is yeah. where is Congress going to get the money to try to do that? Uh, we're hoping that there can be some additional resources. I know Chairwoman Stabenow has talked about a commitment that she has from Majority Senate Majority Leader Schumer to identify about another five billion dollars to be brought in. That's helpful. Um, but yet, uh, you know, that's probably not going to be enough. No, absolutely. So she also has proposed maybe um, 
making farmers choose between crop insurance and the farm safety net. And I'm sure that's something that you guys aren't real supportive of. Yeah, we we appreciate, first of all, Chairwoman Stabenow for putting out, you know, some ideas out there and getting the process started because we do think it's time for, for folks to get serious and laying some proposals on the table. We're supportive of both though. We're we're supportive okay. of her efforts to to and other efforts to strengthen crop insurance by increasing premium subsidies so that you can have higher levels of coverage so that you don't have to ha depend on ad hoc disaster assistance when something you know bad happens. Uh, um, but at the same time, crop insurance is an annual program. It's to cover in-season risk. And the safety net is there to cover the farm programs, ARC and PLC, are to cover more longer-term uh, uh, drops in prices that can occur, whether that's from trade wars or from just uh, other events that happen in the world. And that producers, we don't think, should, should have to make a choice and give up that long-term protection in order to get that, that annual in-season type of risk protection. Yeah. And it's not double dipping. We just um, have to have safety nets because not everything covers everybody, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I also want to talk to you about um, American Soybean Association did a study on the cost of EPA implementing the Endangered Species Act pesticide proposal. And, you know, we talk about the regulatory burden that farmers increasingly face. And what did you guys find out about the cost? Yeah, we're we're pretty concerned about some of the the proposals uh, that EPA has put out um, in order to protect endangered and threatened species, and, and I think all of us are in favor of protecting endangered and threatened species. But we think that EPA has just taken a very broad brush approach, um, and it would make it uh, virtually impossible in large areas of the country uh, to use herbicides. They are, they put out a pilot project. Um, and maybe first of all, I should say there are, that there are around 1,700 threatened and endangered species. They've wow. taken a look for the first 27 of those. So just 27 of, of 1,700 and proposed pesticide use limitation areas where pesticides wouldn't really be able to be used uh, in those areas unless you had approval from your local Fish and Wildlife Service office. Um, and that you would have to obtain that about three months in advance of application. Of course, right now, you know, just describing that, every farmer knows that that's, that's untenable. Um, and you know that, that that doesn't work. And on our analysis, as we took a look again at first just these 27 species and where those pesticides would have to be avoided, it would affect around 13 million acres of cropland. Uh, some some whole states are included in that, like Iowa, for example, and it would uh, affect about five million acres of soybeans. And just for the economic impact on soybeans. It would be about $4 billion of foregone revenue from farmers uh, from uh, this EPA proposal. And so we've told EPA that this doesn't work, that they need to go back to the drawing board uh, and come up with something much more uh, practical that both allows farm farmers to farm, um, but yet also protects uh, endangered species. 
uh, because their current proposal is just unrealistic. Oh my gosh. Hopefully we can get to some more common sense with that in the long run. Uh, EPA did reinstate chlorpyrifos here. Um, obviously farmers were happy about that. Soybean producers, will growers going to, will they be able to use it for the 2024 growing season? We certainly hope so and anticipate so. And that's, a, again, a good example of <clears throat> where we, you know, had to, un unfortunately, uh, both the American Soybean Association and some other grower groups took the EPA to court after they had canceled all tolerances and, and, for, and uses for chlorpyrifos. And the court, you know, thankfully agreed with our position that their own scientists had found that there were 11 safe uses for chlorpyrifos, soybeans being one of those crops, um, and that had high benefits and low risk. And uh, uh, the, EPA, the EPA was forced by the court to reinstate those tolerances. And so now, yes, uh, we, we are working with some of the uh, states that need to uh, do approve the registrations as well, uh, because in some cases those registrations lapsed after EPA took its unfortunate action. Um, but we, yes, we're very hopeful that growers will be able to use chlorpyrifos in the 2024 growing season. Steve, does this set maybe a more science-based precedent for other pesticides? We certainly hope so. And I think it, it points out, uh, you know, I think the power and the importance of the growers, uh, like growers like the American Soybean Association and other grower groups taking action, to force EPA to, uh, you know, follow the science and follow the law. And all too often, as you know, Michelle, in what we have seen there is sometimes um, the EPA has made the decisions. Uh, they have been sued by many times environmental groups, but the grower groups have not been as active. And I think this is this is uh, something where we at the American Soybean Association uh, have become much more active in working in litigation, unfortunately, but we've had to, to defend these crop protection products and make sure that EPA is following the science and the law. And I think that precedent will continue but I do think it sets, uh, to your point, sets a very good precedent um, that EPA knows that the grower groups are going to watch and are going to hold them accountable. Well, that's some good news. Um, you know, we have kind of a shift happening in the soybean industry away from being so dependent on exports to maybe moving more into the realm of biofuels driving the bus what do you see in terms of acreage changes and will we start moving to more of a domestic market versus an export market in the soybean industry? Yeah, no, great question. And of course, the, it's exciting to see the expansion uh, for biofuels, for renewable diesel in the future, you know, sustainable aviation fuel. And we think that's all good news for soybean demand. And we've seen, as you know, around a 30 percent uh, expansion in soybean crush. Yeah. Uh, and that means that we're crushing more uh, of the of the soybeans that we produce here. Uh, we see, you know, relatively modest growth in acres. You know, it's hard to predict, uh, but you know, we think that 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 we will grow soybean acres by a few million acres um, due to this demand. But we also have seen, and we think that we're still going to be a very very significant soybean exporter. Um, it means that we're going to crush more, a few more soybeans here domestically, of course, 
Um, but we're going to be exporting the meal. The mm -hmm. oil is going to be used for food and fuel use. And um, but that with genetic, you know, yield increases and things like that, we think that we're still going to be exporting, you know, close to the same as what we're exporting today. All right. Well, it's an exciting time, obviously, to be in the soybean industry. Uh, Steve, thanks so much. I'll probably see you down at Commodity Classic. I look forward to that, Michelle. Thank you, you so bet. much. Steve Sensky, Steve Sensky, CEO of the American Soybean Association. Well, speaking of biofuels, we'll be back with Money Shaw, Iowa Renewable Fuels Association next. To produce higher yields and greater value at harvest, timing is everything. Full Scale from Helena helps soybeans reach their full potential with breakthrough foliar nutrition and reproduction. Full Scale delivers beneficial plant extracts and micronutrients with the added efficiency of ENC formulation technology. It gives your soybeans every opportunity to grow strong returns this season. Contact your local ag retailer or Helena representative to learn more about Full Scale. Always read and follow label instructions and check registration status before use. From powering irrigation engines to warming buildings, propane has always been a part of American farm life. Now, you can be a part of propane's future and save money at the same time. The Propane Farm Incentive Program is a research initiative that provides farmers up to $5,000 towards the purchase of new propane-powered equipment. In exchange, participants share performance data to make tomorrow's ag operations more cost-effective, more efficient, and more environmentally friendly with propane. Getting started is simple. Visit propane.com slash farm incentive to see if you're eligible. Join us in Orlando at the 2024 NCBA Cattle Convention. Don't miss U.S. Farm Report host Tyne Morgan's live taping with industry experts February 1st at noon. Be part of the live audience at the Chuckwagon Cafe number one. And welcome back to AgriTalk. I'm Michelle Rook and for Chip Flory. Monty Shaw, Executive Director of the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association is joining us for this segment. And Monty, uh, welcome to the show. I know you're just back from Georgia as Lonza Jed inaugurated, what, the world's first ethanol to sustainable aviation fuel production facility? That's right. I was really excited to go down there. Big congratulations to Lonza Jed. It's, it's never easy being the first. A lot of hurdles to overcome, but was able to see the facility. It looks great. Um, they had their grand opening yesterday, and then a couple of delayed flights later, I got back early this morning. So, um, but it was it was a good time to go down there and you know see it with your own eyes. And so, what I can tell your audience is, hey, ethanol to jet, you know what we call SAF, sustainable aviation fuel from ethanol. It's here. It's now. This is not pixie dust. This is not something that might happen in the future. Um, it's happening. And so we need to do everything we can to take advantage of this new market because it's potentially huge. No doubt. We'll talk about that in a minute, minute, but how much SAF will this plant produce? So this is the first commercial scale plant. So it's, it's, uh, uh, it is modular. So this one's going to be, I believe 10 million gallons is what I saw down there. I don't want to talk too much for Lanza yet, but that was on the materials they handed out. Um, but uh, as I understand it, you know, it's modular and then you, uh, have, you can prove out the technology here and then ramp up very quickly. Feedstock, though, is what? Brazilian sugarcane? So my understanding, again, I think, uh, not trying to be coy, but that's probably a question for Lanzajet, not me. I believe that uh, under their DOE grant, they're going to have various different feedstocks that they prove the technology on. Um, but the fact of the matter is, 
there's very little SAF-friendly ethanol produced in the United States. In fact, we only have one plant in North Dakota that where their entire production would would have a low enough carbon score to qualify as a as a, as a sustainable aviation feedstock. You know, our typical ethanol plants are low carbon. You know, we reduce carbon probably 40-50% compared to petroleum, but for sustainable aviation fuel you have to be even lower. And so uh, while we produce so definitely under 200 million gallons uh, in the United States that today is ready for SAF, uh, Brazil, for example, would produce over 7 billion gallons today that would be expected to uh, have a low enough CI to qualify for SAF. So uh, if we're going to be a leader in this market, if we're going to find a home for the corn that we're increasingly um, having excess of, uh, we need to lower that carbon score for ethanol and there's and the good news is we have tools proven tools easy tools to do it we just have to get it done no doubt so you guys did a study that you commissioned on the basically what the saf market would mean for midwest farmers what did you find yeah it's it's probably the single as a, as a distinct market it's probably the single largest new market that U.S. agriculture has ever had the opportunity to, to take advantage of. Um, the goal of the United States is to have 3 billion gallons by 2030, but to have 35 billion gallons of, of sustainable aviation fuel by 2050. Now, think about that. Put that in context. Our, currently, we produce about just over 14 billion gallons of ethanol for light duty cars and trucks. You know, the E10, the, you know, the ethanol blends, blends that we sell into cars. And so this is a much bigger market than that. Um, it won't all be ethanol to jet. Uh, some of the most attractive things are also good for farmers, though. It was called HEFA. It's where you convert soybean oil, corn oil, uh, fats, um, use cooking oil, stuff like that into, into uh, sustainable aviation fuel. So uh, the study found that, we, that the Midwest and, and Iowa would um, benefit greatly uh, from this new market. In fact, you're talking about uh, over the next 20 years, ne needing to build 63 new 200 million gallon a year ethanol plants just to make the ethanol, the additional ethanol we'll need to put into the sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, we'd also be producing, uh, excuse me, building those um, ethanol to jet plants, um, as well as uh, these, these what's called HEFA, but it's the, the fats, oils, and greases plants. So huge uh, economic boost for construction, huge economic boost for operations. So what are you doing as an industry right now to make sure that U.S. ethanol can overcome the barriers that you previously talked about and take advantage of this market? There, there's lots of little things, but there's a couple of big things. The first one is we need a fair carbon scoring tool. And so we've been advocating a lot for the GREET model, Great, uh, yeah. the, the Biden administration, which is the best science in the world. It's what everybody should be using. Um, the, the Biden administration recently said that they would be allowing the GREET model to be one of the ways to score your carbon, but they were probably going to tweak it a little bit. I get nervous when I hear that. You know, I don't think you need to tweak it. But, you know, hopefully in the next couple of months, we'll get some um, guidance on that. And we wanted to also allow us to take into consideration uh, carbon smart farming practices. Um, right now, in many of the programs we deal with, like the RFS, we just have to we have to put in basically a default number for corn, even if we're purchasing corn from a farmer who's doing it in a way that reduces their carbon footprint. So we we need that we need the GREET model to come through. But even no matter what model you use, uh, 
with with the exceptions of of corn kernel fiber ethanol and the one plant in in North Dakota that is doing carbon sequestration because it's sitting over the right formation, so they just drilled straight down. Good for them. Okay. The rest of our ethanol would really benefit from having access to carbon sequestration. That alone would lower your ethanol enough to qualify as a feedstock for SAF. So if you have a plant in Iowa that's probably at a carbon score of about 55 on on the on the range you know, uh, carbon sequestration would knock 30 points off more than half. So that, that is the, that is the game changer. Um, there are other things you can do, but you have, but they're very expensive. And, and quite frankly, with inside the plant gate, they probably don't get you. Okay. A couple of quick questions. OMB concluded their meeting on E15 waiver requests by eight states. Will we get the final rule published before the driving season starts this summer? I don't know. It should, it's literally a year and a half overdue. Uh, they've been sued. They just need, they, they should finalize it tomorrow. I don't know what they'll do, but we do expect good news when it happens. All right. Let's hope that is the case. Thanks, Monty. All right. Anytime. Thank you. You bet. Monty Shaw, who is the executive director of the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association. Well, join us this afternoon uh, for AgriTalk PM. I'm going to be visiting with Jim McCormick with agmarket.net. And for Davis Michelson and Joe Stackler, I'm Michelle Rook in for Chip Flory. Thanks for joining us for this edition of AgriTech. We'll see you back at 206.